Well, if you have your uh, Bible, you take it and turn with me to the book of Revelation. We can all imagine with the eye of the mind the runner who is on his last lap. And he has spent himself and he is convinced that there is nothing left whatsoever in him to go. And you might imagine as he's beginning to wane and stumble, another runner who comes along beside him, not on the track, but maybe in the grass. And this runner has run over to his friend and, and he's yelling at the other runner and exhorting him and, and calling him to endure pointing him to the finish line, showing him that it's not that far away. That he needs to endure, he needs to, to muster all the strength and all the energy and all the, all, the, all the passion and wind that he can possibly find and dig out of himself and, and run with endurance the race that is marked out for him. Fixing his eye on the goal trying the best he can to, to, to scorn the shame of, of his weak frame and, 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 and put aside the pain and the agony that his body is going through and push through to the end. No runner is going to be a great runner that can't do that. And he's going to have moments where he has to do that. Or maybe you can imagine in the eye of your mind a soldier that is on the battlefield and it looks bleak. <laughs> and they're under heavy fire. And they don't know how they can possibly make any kind of advance. And maybe he's got several soldiers around him and they're just kind of hunkered down behind the hill and they just don't know how to go forward because they know if they poke their head up over the hill, they're just going to get shot and it's going to be over because, you know, they're using real bullets out there and it's just not going to be a pretty picture. And so they're hunkered down and it seems like it's going to be an absolute defeat. And then out of nowhere comes this blazing, amazing leader flying over their heads and says, follow me and he charges into the enemy and they're like, yeah, let's go! And they go! And yeah, there's real bullets and some of them get hit and some fall down and some may die but they charge and they charge and they take the enemy. You love that part in the movie. That's just the great part. Or maybe you can imagine the boxer. He's up against the ropes or maybe he's laying flat on the the floor of the ring. And he doesn't think he can get up. But the bell is just seconds away. And if he stays down, he loses. But if he gets up and just charges and re-energizes himself and charges after Apollo Creed or somebody else, he's going to win. I'll never forget that little image when Rocky was down. And he has this vision of Mickey in his mind. Mickey, the little trainer. Get up! Now, Mickey spoke very colorfully, so we can't quote Mickey here. But he gets up. Or maybe you can envision in the eye of your mind a Christian who is weary in the journey of following after the celestial city. He needs to hear a clarion call to endure. He needs to be reminded that it's through endurance that the saints inherit 
eternal life. In the book of Revelation, in chapters 12 through 22, we are reaching what we might call the climax of the biblical drama. We are nearing the end. We are encountering, like the runner and the soldier and the boxer, we are encountering Christians that are weary in the journey. In Revelation chapter 11 and verses 15 through 19, you'll recall we spent several weeks there. And in that particular text, we, we spoke of those, those verses as the denouement or the, the unveiling of the climax of the narrative that is the Bible. That everything from Genesis flowed forward into this Glorious text where it declares the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. In kind of a, a small capsule in Revelation eleven fifteen to 19 that's the picture of the end. And in chapter 12 through 22, we have that capsule, if you will, expanded. And if Revelation chapter 11 verses 15 to 19 takes us to the end, Revelation chapter 12 takes us all the way back to the beginning and then flows through chapter 22 all the way to the end. Now what I want to give us today is a, a, a brief look at the big picture of the rest of the book of Revelation. And then I want us to come back and focus more narrowly on uh, the first section, which is chapters 12 through 15, and then we're going to come and look even more narrowly at this call to endurance. So let me give you first kind of a big picture overview of where we're going to go. When we come to chapter 12, we are dead center in the book of Revelation, literally speaking. All right? Chapters 1 through 11, chapters 12 through 22. All right? We've had 11, we have 11 more to go. Right? However, chapters 12 through 22 are like the last lap. <laughs> because it's, 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 it's quickly happening. All the things that have been building up for these 11 chapters are quickly going to unfold in the laying out of what we've seen so far of the, the bowls and the judgment on on the, uh, the, the great whore, and the judgment on Babylon, and the rider that will descend from heaven on the white horse and slay the nations, um, and then the glorious picture of the new heaven and the new earth. Let me just give you this in kind of an outline form. If you're taking some notes, uh, you can look with me. Uh, we're not going to read all of this. Um, but section 1, we'll say, is chapters 12 through 15, broadly speaking. All right, Maybe have a couple verses overlap here or there. Chapters 12 through 15 is the first section we're going to look at, and that is a realization of the roots of the battle. In other words, he takes us back to the very beginning, and we'll see more about that here in a few weeks. Next week, we're going to take a break from Revelation. Dave will be preaching, uh, Lord willing, and then we'll come back and, and with a more detailed look at chapter 12 here in a few weeks. So there's a, there's a realization in these chapters of the roots and the heart of the battle that is going on between God and Satan, good versus evil, the people of God versus the, 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 those who follow uh, the enemy. In chapter 16 to 20, there is retribution that is poured out on the rebellious. This is the climactic judgment of the book of Revelation. In many ways, it is still, for us today, it is still future. Now, we're going to find a lot of things that we still experience in here, uh, but the, 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 the culmination of the book of Revelation, the pouring out of the bowls of wrath, the time for Satan when his time is short and he's running around like a, like a, like a ravaged beast who's been wounded, uh, that, that, that there's a sense in which Revelation 16 through 20 are still future. So we've had the seals, we've had the trumpets, and now we're going to have the bowls, but the bowls are still future for us. 
Though, again, there is some overlap because a lot of things that happen in the pouring out of the bowls is just a, a display of the wrath of God, and, and we see the wrath of God coming upon men even today. The final section in chapters 21 to 22 is what we all long for. It's the happy part, if you will, of the book of Revelation. Uh, it's the reward of the righteous. All right? It's the new heaven. It's the new earth. It's the new city. It's the river that, that, that flows through the center of the city of God. It's the, the river that flows from the throne. It's the river of Ezekiel that, that floods the earth. It's, the, it's as the prophet Habakkuk speaks about the, 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 the water covering the, the earth, like the, like the waters cover the sea and the glory of God fills the earth. It's the, it's the glorious uh, climax of the book in chapter 22 when, when John sees it all and says, yes, come. Come quickly. Come now. He doesn't say, oh, hold off. <laughs> you know, we read the book of Revelation and we're tempted to go, oh, I hope that's for later. I hope that's like for after I'm dead. And my kids are dead. And my grandkids too. And, and off to a generation I don't even know. <laughs> and I hope that's like way out there somewhere. But John reads it and he's like, now. Today be good. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of waiting. Let's, let's let this happen now. So, so that's kind of a big picture of where the rest of the book of Revelation goes. Chapters 12 to 15, the realization of the roots of the drama kind of uncovers some stuff for us. Um, chapters 16 to 20, the retribution that is going to be poured out on the rebellious. And chapter 21 and 22, the reward for the righteous. That covers in, in brief uh, fashion uh, the second half of the book. What I want us to do today is come back to chapter 12 12 through 15, and specifically 12, 1 through 15, 4. And I want us to look at this section of the realization of the roots of the battle where several things are going to be disclosed to the people of God, showing them why things are like they are, why they've been this way, why they are this way, why they will continue this way until God brings His judgment on the wicked. Chapter 12 in verse 1. Now, we don't have time. Uh, we really don't. Uh, I wanted to read the whole thing. That's why I printed it up for you in your bulletin. You'll see it there. Uh, Jeff probably just about collapsed this morning when he got uh, walked in and said, oh, four chapters, he came up to me. You want to read this today? I said, no, you're, you're safe. And inside, he was probably saying, yes. All right. I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> but um, I, I wanted to read the entire section, but we will, uh, we will come back later and have to have to do that and as you might expect uh the entire section lays out uh rather neatly uh in seven sections all right uh, again uh looking at that 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 pattern of seven that comes uh throughout the book of the book of revelation this text and when i say this text i mean these four chapters all right they are structured around two very distinct and very similar calls to the church to endure. And those I do want to show you. Look with me, if you will, in Revelation chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. In very familiar words to us in the book of Revelation from chapters 2 and 3, he begins with the phrase, If anyone has an ear, let him what? Let him hear. Okay, so there's the, there's the reminder to you while you're listening today. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Now you might sit there and think, well, you know, of course I have ears. Everybody has them. Check right there. You don't look at them very often. But you've got ears, right? But it's not talking about your physical ears. It wants to know those who have spiritual ears, those who have spiritual perception, need to what? Need to pay attention. This is a message to the church. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Earlier it had said what the Spirit says to the churches. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain, or must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. 
If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be, must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Now, this is a fascinating passage because it, it's, it's, it's borrowing from language from the Old Testament. A couple of different places at least. At one point in the Old Testament, it's, it's a reference that is made by God about His people who have been stubborn in their idolatry, and it's speaking about their exile. They're going to be killed by the sword. They're going to be slain. They're going to be taken what? Captive. If they're to be taken captive, well then to captivity, they will go. And it almost has a little bit of a little little jot, a little ring to it. Almost like you might think a little to captivity we will go. Almost like a little fun kind of a thing, you know. Off to, to grandma's house we go. You know, we had had a little 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 thought or a little ditty. It sounds kind of cheery or whatever. This is nothing cheery. This is not about going off over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house we go. This is this is over the river. Yes, it's through the wilderness and to Babylon we go. It's to exile we go. It's to the sword that we go. It's to death that we go. God has reached, if you will. He's had enough with His people. And He's saying, you're gone. I'm done. I'm done. There's another part in the Old Testament where this is used, this kind of phrasing is used of the nations. And God's judgment of the nations. He's going to judge them. He's going to deliver them to captivity. He's going to bring them to sword. He's going to bring them to death. Their rebellion, their sin has reached the apex. But what I want you to see is when John borrows from the language of the Old Testament, and when he alludes to this language of the Old Testament, he is alluding to it and borrowing from it to make use of it for a different purpose. And the biblical writers will often do that. He's not saying, you know, as it is written, thus and so, or the prophet, the prophecy is fulfilled in this. He's, he's simply using biblical imagery and biblical thought and biblical verbiage to communicate here a whole new idea. And they once said of Spurgeon that if you pricked him, he would bleed the what? He'd bleed the Bible. His blood was Bibline, they would call it. Right? Um, you ever talk to somebody that they're just so saturated in something that no matter what they do, you know, they seem to just kind of think and speak in those kinds of that kind of verbiage. You know, you talk to some guy that's like a engineer type, you know. Sorry, Tate, you know, engineer guys or whatever. You know, just maybe, maybe guys are just like saturated in math and electronics, and, and, and thinking through problems and things like that. And, and they're always making analogies or illusions or illustrations out of that kind of a world. And you just look at them like, what are you talking about? You know, I mean, it's like you have to follow like a schematic diagram just to understand what they're, what they're saying. Um, or maybe you, you talk to somebody that's a mechanic, or you talk to somebody that watches ESPN all day. Everything's a touchdown. Everything's a goal. Everything's two points, you know? Or, you know, he does something amazing. He brings home flowers to his wife and he says, yes, nothing but net. You know, he, he just thinks in those kinds of biblical, not biblical, but he, he thinks in those kinds of things that he's saturated with. Well, John... John's mind is also saturated with the Bible. And the biblical writers, it's amazing, especially the New Testament writers, they're saturated in the Old Testament. All right? And they're often borrowing from biblical images to restate things and say things and get, get our attention. Here he does this. And he's not using this language to speak about rebellious covenant members who are being cast off into exile. He's not using it to speak about the nations who are wicked and evil, who are going to be judged. He's using this imagery about faithful Christian people. And he says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, you know what's going to happen? They're going to captivity. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, you know what's going to happen? 
They're going to be slain. Here is a call for what? Endurance. Endurance. Some in the Christian church go into captivity. Some go into martyrdom. And when we face those kinds of things in the world, whatever we face under the providence of our loving Father who always does what is right, it's an opportunity, it's a challenge, it's a call for you and I to what? Endure. Endure. To run the last leg of that race or to, 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 to charge the hill to take it in battle or to get up off the floor and, and take one more swing, if you will, in the ring and not grow weary in doing good. This passage is surrounded in chapters 12 and 13 by an onslaught that is brought on the church by what we're going to see in our study of these chapters later on. We will see them as a false trinity. It mentions in chapter 12 the dragon, and it mentions a beast, and then it mentions in chapter 13 a false prophet who comes and breathes life back into the beast that receives a mortal wound. And like the father who orchestrates and, and overrules, so there is a dragon who comes with all these heads and all these crowns and all this authority and all this power. And he, he orchestrates this, this cosmic rebellion against God and against the church. And he has a beast that he appoints. And the beast receives a mortal wound. But the beast is brought back to life kind of mocking the resurrection. And, and, he, and he, he, he distracts people from the true Trinity, and he, he, he wins their affection and wins their attention, and then there is a, a false prophet that comes and, and speaks deceitful words to the church and calls her to worship the beast that had the wound and to be drawn away from Christ. And this, this false trinity of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet are, are all over these two chapters in chapter 12 and 13. And right in the middle of it, it says in chapter 13, verse 7, it was allowed, this is the beast, to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Listen up. It's going to get very difficult. Now we only think life is hard now. And life is hard. But what the scripture is saying here is for that generation of Christians that face that very last day, if you will, there is going to be a turning up, if you will, of the heat and of the difficulty that even gets worse. And he says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, well, that's what's going to happen. To captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, that's what's going to happen. With a sword he must be slain. Here is a call, believer. Here is a call for you and me today for the endurance and the faith of the saints. The encouragement that's given in chapter 14 and verses 1 to 5 is a picture of this 144,000, the church that is sealed and secure. And notice what happens in chapter 14, verse 3. When John has this vision of the church, they are singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders, and no one can learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Now, for me, it's turning a page. Chapter 14, verse 12. I want you to look over there. There is a second call. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Does that sound familiar to what we just heard in chapter 
13. Again, if we look at this particular text, it is surrounded also by difficulty, by wrath, and by judgment, and by wickedness. In chapter 14, verse 6, all the way down to chapter 14, verse 20, the very end, there is rebellion, there is wrath poured out, there is wickedness, and there is judgment. It's followed by, in chapter 15, notice in verses 1 through 4, another vision of something appearing to John, in verse 2, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying... Now, think back up here with me for a minute. We're going to have time later, Lord willing, to go through chapters 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and see more of the detail and how all this kind of fits together. What I want to draw our attention to today, though, is this idea of the call to endure. Because it's in the midst of the difficulty that you and I face today and every day, and that our brothers and sisters face around the world, everywhere, and that our brothers and sisters will face, and perhaps us, I don't know when the end is going to come. I don't know exactly when this is all going to take place. I don't know when the the final days, the last few weeks or months or years are going to be. I do know the escalation of evil will grow from worse to worse. The Bible does seem to give that picture. However, whether whether we're in that time or whether we're just a, a little before sequence, you know, it's going to be after there's still the need every day to what? To endure. There's the need to keep faith. There's the need to keep the commandments of God. There is the need to endure. I want you to think with me about who it is that receives this call. The Bible describes the people who receive this call to endurance as saints. Chapter 13, verse 10, here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Chapter 14, verse 12, here's a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commands of God and their faith in Christ Jesus. They are called saints. The word for saint is a word that means to be made holy or to be set apart. In other words, it is, a, it is an individual who is different from everybody else that is visible in the world. Now, the problem is, is the saint is not always visibly recognizable. Although it is true, Christian people do Christian things. Christian people do good works. They do good deeds. There are, in fact, many people, if just observed from the outside, that are doing good things. Now, we've done a study in our study of the Confession on Sunday afternoon of what a, what a true good work is. A true good work is born out of a heart of faith. A true good work is done in the manner in which God prescribes it to be done. And a true good work is done to an end, the glory of God, for which is the end of all things. Now, all people don't do good things that way. Most people in the world just do good things that just look good. <laughs> they're not done from a heart of faith. They're not done to a right end. So, just looking at everybody in the world from an outwardly outward observation, we can't determine necessarily who saints are. One of the things, though, that suffering does is suffering begins to bring out the reality of who we really are. Alright? A saint is a person who has been called out of the world. He's been called out of the darkness. He has been called out of Satan's domain. He is his heart now set on another world. He is living in the kingdom of the light of Christ. 
and he lives under God's dominion. Hence, when suffering comes to his life and begins to strip from him the things in this world that many count as their prize and their joy, the saint gladly, joyfully lets them go because he has a greater possession and a more abiding one in another world. Look with me in the book of Hebrews for a moment. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 32, comes to a group of people who are saints. They have been set apart. They have been brought into the holy places by the blood of Jesus. In verse 19, they are holding fast the confession of their hope without wavering. It says in verse 32, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What is it that moves the Christian to be able to joyfully let go of things in the world, even good things in the world? What is it that, what is it that gives them the strength and the encouragement to be able to do that? Yesterday, one of the things that the pastor said in his eulogy of my uncle he made a comment about Lynn. He said, remember him, but let him go. Remember him, but let him go. You know, sometimes in this world, people die. And the people who knew them best and loved them most and were with them, they, they just they never get over that. They just can't, they can't let go of that person, or that thing, or that treasure, or a child, or whatever it may have been. Good things that, that we get our hands wrapped around, that's not wrong to love and cherish one another. But the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. And the true believer who's holding on to the Lord can say with Job, Blessed be the name of the Lord. God gives treasures like He does to the, to the Hebrew people here in this book. And, and they had property and they, they had things. But they were able to accept joyfully the plundering of their property. Why? Because they knew that their loving Heavenly Father, who will give them the kingdom, has provided for them a better, more enduring possession ever. I sat with my aunt on, was it Friday afternoon when I saw Mary? Mary's a, she's a great Christian lady. And um, Janice and I got to go out and visit with her for, I don't know, half an hour maybe or so. We're just going to go for a couple minutes, and we stayed for about half an hour and had a great visit with her. And, and um, she was just saying how, you know, everybody keeps telling me, you know, how are you doing? You know, that kind of thing. And, and I know she's grieving. I know she's got sorrow. But there is, a, there is a real deep part of her that is just rejoicing because my uncle, who has been debilitated by Parkinson's for the last five, six years, life was just taken away from him. Life is his in the fullest now. And she can let him go. Now, she's going to have times when she weeps. And she's going to have times where she falls to pieces. And she's going to have times like that, I'm sure. But overall, she can joyfully let him go to the Father. Why? He's free. He's full of happiness and delight and joy. And she one day will be free herself. And she'll be where? She'll be with Him, with the Lord forever. So Paul says, encourage one another with these kinds of words. 
We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. I heard somebody try to calculate the twinkling of an eye one time. It's not very long. We will see him, and we will all be changed. We do not grieve as the world grieves. When the world loses, the world doesn't know how to function anymore. And so it either falls into despair, or it quickly moves to grab something else in the world to give it hope and give it peace. The saint, the saint is a person who has been called out of the world, and though he lives in it, he knows he's in the world, but he is not of the world anymore. This is why Paul can say things like, it sounds just weird when Paul says this in the book of Corinthians, those who have wives should live as if they have none. Huh? Those who have property should live as if they have no property. (coughs) Hold on to things in the world, beloved. He's saying hold on to things what? Lightly. Because things don't in this world last. And the Lord gives things, and the Lord takes things away, and He does it. One, it reveals to us where our heart's affection really is. And it gives testimony to the world where our heart's affection really is. And it calls us to treasure Him more than anything in the world. This call to endurance is going out to saints who are constantly going through a process of having things in the world and having them taken by their Father. It sounds so mean if you look at it from one angle. And on the other angle, it seems so loving that He would not allow your heart or my heart to become so enraptured with a temporary treasure. And He would draw my heart where? Back to an everlasting treasure. And he does it, doesn't he? He does it every day. (laughs) Over and over and over again. And there's a call to you and to me in that to endure. To endure. We see our health slipping. Maybe we see our wealth slipping. We see all those things the prosperity gospel tells us we need to have in this world slipping away from us. And we say, oh! But then we look where? We look up. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We, we look up and we set our mind on things above where Christ is. Our life, our true life is hid with Christ in God. That's our life. That's where our treasure is. This is why Jesus can say things, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Your treasure reveals where your heart is. It's not so much that if I just lay up enough treasure in heaven, my heart will get right. Salvation by some kind of treasure layaway plan. All right. No. Once the heart is transformed into the heart of a saint, he begins to lay up treasure where? In heaven. And as the things of the world are ripped away from him, and as he can joyfully say, I'll let them go, and as he can hold on to his Father in heaven above, and rejoice in Christ above, and see, that is his inheritance. He sees that his heart is what? Being purified, purged, and made right. And thus, where his treasure is, that's where his what? That's where his heart is. We're, this, is a, this is a command, an exhortation that's given to saints. It's, it's an exhortation that sounds absolutely absurd to a person that's not a saint. Because because the the world looks at the Christian who's willing to give up all for the sake of Christ, who's willing to say with Paul, for me to live is Christ, for me to die is gain. The world looks at that, and the world says, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of in the world. Because you only go around once, baby, and you better grab all you can while you're here. I forget the little thing, you know, eat all you can can the rest, sit on the rest, or whatever. Don't let anybody have it. Whatever. But the way a saint lives his or her life is absolutely absurd. Kids, the way you are called to live your life for Jesus Christ is going to look absolutely stupid to the world. 
I thought yesterday at that funeral. Two guys. Two guys gave eulogies. They had two pastors. Uh, they, one knew him from early, and one, you know, when you live 80 years almost, you know, I guess you've got to get a couple people to speak about the different parts and times of your life because, you know, um, not everybody can know somebody that whole, whole time. And they had one pastor speak the 1970s and 80s version, and somebody spoke the 90s and 2000s version of the eulogy. It was kind of interesting. And uh, I thought as we sat there about uh, the young people that were present in that room, I thought about my own kids. One day, one day, somebody is going to give your eulogy. Now you're sitting there thinking, what's a eulogy? Are you with me, Hannah? You know what a eulogy is? A eulogy is it's the nice things that people say about people at funerals. You ever been to a funeral? You know, old Uncle Gus died. You know, Uncle Gus... Name sounds like cuss. You know, he was a real he was a real bum. But they get up at the funeral and they speak. You'd think he just hung the moon. Now it just so happens that my Uncle Lynn was a great guy. <laughs> so it brought hard to find good things to say about Uncle Lynn. But funerals happen to be a, a, a time where they say great things about you. Here's the question. Will they have to make up stuff about you? that isn't true when you die? What will they say about you? One day, somebody's going to, to give your eulogy. They're going to get up and have to say good things about your life. What will they say? What will they say about you? I was reading this... Uh, book on Puritan theology a few weeks ago, and one of the things the Puritans did, and they were often thought as morbid people, but they were not. They were sober-minded people. And one of the things Puritans would often do is they would think every day about dying. This may be the last day I live. This may be the last day I live. And some of you are putting off doing things for Christ, because right now you're busy doing things for you. And you need to think about that. You need to think about your life. Paul said, my life is Christ. Is that your life? If you were to die today, what would they say about you? Would they have to make it up? Would they have to dig it up? Or would it be obvious what you're all about? A saint, a saint, friend, makes it obvious what he or she's about. And they're about Christ. And they're willing to joyfully let go of things and receive this kind of an exhortation. Why Why do they need this kind of exhortation? And my time is completely out almost, and I haven't even read the chapters. Why do they need it? Let me give you just two things real quick. They need it because they grow weary. And they need to be exhorted. They need to be encouraged to finish that last leg of the race. They need to be encouraged to finish that uh, battle. They need to be encouraged to get up in the ring and continue to fight. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13 says, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Why would that need to be said? Because even though you're a saint, you're also, as Luther would say, at the same time, both saint and sinner. And we grow weary, don't we? We grow weary. We're feeble. We're, we're frail people. We grow weary in doing good. We need to be exhorted. But there is also, friends, listen, there is also embedded in here in the book of Revelation, warning. There's warning. The writer of Hebrews, in that chapter... Where he sat there and said, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. He's speaking to the same people and he says things like this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Don't abandon your confession. The only guy that makes it to the end and endures, he's the one that receives the reward. Did you hear what it said? 
in Revelation chapter 14, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this in verse 13, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Let us not grow weary in doing good, Paul says to the Galatians, for in due season we will what? Reap a harvest if we do not what? We do not give up. We do not give up. We do not give up. The reward that is spoken of in the book of Revelation is the reward of rest. Remember what he says to the, uh, the martyrs who are under the altar. How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? And what does he say? He, he gives them white robes and he says, rest a little longer. And what will they, what will they finally inherit? So if we think of Revelation chapter 6, uh, verse 11, he says, each is given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And then in chapter 14, and verse 13, it says, they may rest from their labors. You and I, as saints, set apart from the world, set apart unto God, are called to labor and to work and to fight and to run and to battle and to box and to have a purposeful pursuit of heaven. And one day, one day, in heaven, that's when we what? Rest from our labor. Close with this story in Luke 18. It says that Jesus told a parable. Now he was exhorting them to pray and not lose heart in prayer. And this certainly parallels what's going on in the book of Revelation. I think it has application though also um, that we ought always to labor. We ought always to labor for the king. It was the old hymn, Let us labor for the master. From dawn till setting sun, let us labor for the Master till our work on earth is done. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. I love how the Lord sometimes uses these offbeat kind of stories uh, that if you push them too far, they caricature God in a completely wrong way. Uh, but it's a parable. It's not an allegory. Um, and it's not meant to be an exact equivalent. He's, he's trying to use this story to encourage us to pray. Like the woman who was persistent. I uh, emailed Jim Renahan late last night about 9.30 or whatever. I said, Jim, I'm looking for an article that you wrote. I said, uh, I said can you send it to me? Do you have it? And, uh, and about 15 minutes later, bless his heart, he replied to me. I thought, wow, that's pretty good. I mean, that's, that's almost like having access to one of the saints. If I were a Catholic, I would think I've, <laughs> I've touched Jim through email. And he sent it to me, and he said, Jason, Matthew 7, 7, Jim. Matthew 7, 7, ask, and it will be given to you. Knock, and you shall find, seek, and open. You, you get the idea. I'm paraphrasing poorly. And I thought, that's pretty good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to use that again. And he graciously sent me the, the article I was looking for. Um, problem is, the article was like 40 pages, and so <laughs> it's unread on my desk. And, uh, but I'll, I'll try to read it later, maybe today. But he... She's persistent. She's she's aggressive. She's passionate. She's 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 like a like a runner. She's like a soldier. She's like a fighter, and she's not going to be denied. She wants her answer. And Jesus says, "Hear what the unrighteous judge says." And will not God give justice to His elect? who cried to Him day and night. Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, 
When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Here is a call, brothers and sisters, in your life and in my life and the lives of our brothers and sisters around the world. Here's a call to endurance and a call to faith. And it's a call to you, to the saints, to labor for the Master from dawn till setting sun. And let us labor for the Master till our work on earth is done. Then we'll gather on the shore. Then we'll rest from all of our labors. But today, today is a day, by the grace of God, for the glory of God, and the good of your own soul, a day to endure. So let's do that for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the call to endure. And thank you, God, in the gospel for the grace that we need to endure. God, we are not sent out from this place to endure in our own strength, and our own power. We are called to endure by looking at Jesus, the author and the finisher, the one who starts and the one who completes our faith in you. God, for the joy set before him, he endured the shame of the cross, scorning its shame, that he might one day sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, I pray that you would help us to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, that we might not grow weary or faint-hearted in our struggle against sin. Oh God, awaken in us the energy of a runner, the passion of a soldier, and the stirring power of a boxer. God, help us to not grow weary in the journey, but as saints to receive, humbly receive the call to endurance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's a gracious thing that the Lord has given us His Word to exhort us to endure, and He has given us His Son, Jesus to strengthen us in our endurance, and the Lord Jesus himself comes to us and ministers to us in this meal that we take each Lord's Day, uh, bread and wine for the journey, finding strength in the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, if you would uh, come and meet me here at the front as we come to the table of the Lord.